Transform your home in one weekend with paint from Menards. Get a paint that combines durability and gorgeous color. Dutch Boys DuraClean Interior Paint and Primer in One offers Stay Clean technology, making your home stay beautiful and clean longer. And with Dutch Boys Easy Opening Smooth Pouring Container, transforming your home has never been easier. Save big money on Dutch Boy paints and head into Menards to get your paint project started today. You know, a car fire is like, we get them all the time, and it's like, you hope that there's no one in there, you know, but sometimes there are. And and it was just my first experience with what burnt, you know, human beings look like. Maddie Fiorenza spent 22 years as a firefighter, paramedic in Southern California. I wanted to feel my feelings, but at the same time, there's the stigma around you know, and the shame around not being able to, quote-unquote, handle it. He became drawn to the profession when, at 19, he was invited to a barbecue at a local firehouse. He saw firsthand the warm, good-natured, and close camaraderie between the firefighters, and he imagined himself fitting right in. It was a great job, and there were good benefits, and, you know, I could get paid to help people. But over the years... The traumas he encountered on the job slowly chipped away at his mental health. Depression, PTSD, a traumatic brain injury, substance abuse, a suicide attempt. Support was scarce. Programs, virtually non-existent. And then, a lifeline for Maddie. A clinician referred him to a trauma retreat. It was for combat veterans. But they took first responders, too. He said, you're having a normal response to trauma. And, um, like, I never got that validation. It was always, I'm broken, I'm crazy, I can't do the job. I just, all this negative self-talk and this inner critic that was just so loud. I'm Kimmy Culp, and this is All the Wiser, a show about hope, and possibility on the other side of pain. And today, about caring for the mental health of our first responders. My given name is Matthew Fiorenza, but all my close friends, and I've just kind of adopted Maddie. So um, my parents were high school sweethearts, Irish, Italian, Catholic family. Uh, my mom was a stay-at-home mom, and my dad was a Marine Vietnam vet, sergeant for the sheriff's department in Orange County, a deputy. Um, it was a tumultuous relationship. Maddie's dad left when he was just three months old. They moved around a lot. His mom remarried, and Maddie was adopted by his stepdad, who pretty much raised him. They were poor and lived in some rough areas of Southern California. He was a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, sensitive kid, and he was bullied a lot. He had to do a lot of fighting. And it was scary, not only outside the house, but inside the house, too. Eventually, his mom divorced his stepdad. That was ugly, and um, she got a new boyfriend who... He was abusive to me, and to my mom and it was I was a mama's boy so I got beat up a lot at home I got beat up on the street like 
it was just, it was tough. Because there was so much going on inside my house, I was, wasn't looked after really. And I had to fend for myself in a lot of ways. So I was, you know, sexually abused. I was emotionally abused. I was physically abused, but it, it wasn't all bad. You know, I like to say like, um, my grandparents really did a good job of, of making sure that Christmas was special and, you know, things like that. And so, and you know, my mom was a lot of, she was undiagnosed mental health and we got the brunt of it as kids. So at 13 years old, I, I was tired. I was going to an all boys Catholic high school playing football. And that was, that was my identity, right? That's what I like to call my athlete warrior. Like I had friends, I had a place to go. I was part of a team, you know, and I basically, I lost my position on the team to a, a kid whose parents bought the school a bus. And that's when things just like, I lost hope, you know, I lost my identity. I lost my friends and, and I hated the school and I didn't want anything to do with it. And I didn't feel worthy to be there anyways, cause my, my mom could barely pay tuition. And, and so I, I ended up running away from home. My sister took me in at 13. I, I ended up going to public school and I got into alcohol and drugs and, and I started hanging out with, you know, bad people. Now, my real dad was out of the picture because he ended up assaulting my mom in front of me as a kid. And so I, I didn't see him until I was about 18 years old when I decided that I wanted to reconnect with him. And it was weird. Yeah. It was weird. Yeah. There was a time where, you know, as much as I hated him, I still wanted to be like him and service was in my family. Like I just come from a family of service. At what point do you decide or sort of I guess, consciously that you want to be a firefighter, that you want to pursue this, this career? Well, I, I met a girl. <laughs> Where all good stories right, begin. Yeah. Right. Uh, I met a girl and I fell in love and I wanted to marry her. And I wanted to, I wanted something better for myself than the chaos that I grew up in. And, you know, I just wanted a quote unquote normal life, you know, and she was, she was beautiful and, she was so, she was just my person, you know, I, and I, I was 18 years old and her mom was a purchasing agent for the forest service. And her mom was always talking about base camp and fire camp and firefighters. And, and she was always making friends with these guys. And so she met these guys from that were from King city, California, and they were volunteers and they invited us up for a barbecue at the firehouse. And I went up there and they let me like, like I was, you know, 19 years old. I never squirt a fire hose or anything like that. I was like, they were letting me do that. And, and I was just like getting to know these guys and they were just like salt of the earth, calloused hand, hardworking, good people, you know? Yeah. And I was like, I sat on the, uh, the app floor, which is where they, they park the fire engines. And I sat on the engine for like an hour, like by myself, like, it's funny now that I think about it, like reconnecting with my higher power and asking like, God, like, this is what I want to do. Yeah. Like I'll, I'll do anything I have to, to do this. It all makes so much sense already to me when you talk about sitting on that fire truck that here you are surrounded by all of these good men, right? right. My guess is you'd been searching for good men right. and role models and to be a part of a team, right? Which yep. sounds like not only do you see them as a team and the idea of being part of something, but also having these role models and, and good men. Yes. So that, that makes a lot of sense to me why it would all click yeah. for you. 
Absolutely. I just wanted to belong. Yeah. You know, I just wanted to belong to something that was greater than me. Like maybe at the time didn't put those things together, but looking back now, absolutely. And that's, that was part of the problem towards the end. If Maddie's life was a movie, the next scene would play like a montage. Let's call it the working hard to learn your craft montage. Like daniel son and the Karate Kid or Maverick in Top Gun. Maddie wanted to be the best of the best. So I was like, I want to learn everything about the job. I want to learn all the specialties there are to learn. You know, I want to be really good at what I do. And I wanted to go to paramedic school. That was a big deal to me. Like, I liked the medical side of it. Mm -hmm. And my goal was to have a successful 30-year career where I knew everything about the job. And and I could leave with a pension and with my family intact, have all these toys. And then all this time off, too. You know, it was like... I get to be home on Mondays to drive my kids to school. And I had this fantasy idea of, I'm, I know it's a dangerous job. It's not going to happen to me. I'm going to make sure that, you know, my guys are safe and that I'm safe and, and nothing bad's going to happen. I'm not going to get hurt, you know. And if I do get hurt, I'm going to be taken care of, right? Yeah. Yeah. What about the allure of, there's a real superhero aspect to that career, from the outside world, mm -hmm. right? This idea of walking with, you know, the child in your arms, saving them. So I would imagine there was, of course, a draw there. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's why little boys and girls, right? When you ask yeah. them so young, it's really this kind of superhero. Absolutely. And I'm a big superhero fan. Yeah. You know, I, I collected comic books at a young age that I still have, as a matter of fact. But yeah, I... That was the role I took too in my family. It's funny because I can look back now and answer that question differently than yeah. if you were to ask me that 25 years ago. It was a great job. It, there were good benefits and, you know, I could get paid to help people, you know, but now looking back, it's like when you talk about behavioral health and why we make decisions that we make, absolutely, you know, and I, I wanted to save people because... I had a hard time saving myself as a kid. And so taking on that role as a hero in my family and then out in the world, absolutely, yeah. It was, it was big draw to it. I'm curious about, you know, what is or what was your day-to-day -day life as a firefighter? Yeah, what's the day-to-day mm -hmm. -day life? There's a lot of structure to it. And I think I liked that because I didn't have much growing up besides Catholic school. So I, I like structure. I like having a plan for the day, you know, what I call now my daily practice that includes all kinds of things, but that's an exciting part of it too, right? It's like there's structure, but at the same time, like you never know what's going to happen next. And we're busy people. A lot of us are type A, little OCD, you know, like can't sit still kind of thing. So we're always cleaning something or making something better or checking stuff out or learning something new. And then that goes throughout the day. We, we usually cook together. Um, that's an important part, I think, of the fire service. It's a little different than for law enforcement, but um, cooking together and eating together at the table is, is a tradition. That's a good one, you know, and that was something too, like at a young age, I had that a little bit, but then that was lost, you know? So sitting at the table with the guys joking, laughing, telling stories and 
And usually, you know, if you have a good group of people that you're working with, that you live with essentially, that you click well with, we would sit at the table for an hour after we ate, just hanging out, you know, and then hopefully, you know, we wind down. Usually after dinner is when we call our families. So everyone will find their corner and get on the phone and check in with their family and, and then maybe watch a movie together and hit the dorm and try to, you know, go to sleep and see if uh, you make it to the morning without getting up 10 times, you know, which doesn't happen that often. But I mean, that's a typical day. I mean, how long are the shifts? 24 hours. I've done a fair amount of filming in firehouses over the years. And the culture of food is so present in Mm -hmm. every single one. Mm -hmm. I mean, talking about food, meeting these men who are really passionate about food, Mm -hmm. the meals, and the sophistication of the cooking and Mm -hmm. the culinary. Um, Yeah, it seems to be this big sort of centerpiece of meals and cooking together, Mm -hmm. which is so uh, unique to most people's professional experience. Mm -hmm. So Maddie starts off his new career as a firefighter, finding purpose and belonging. And on a personal front, he and his girlfriend, Shannon, get married. Shannon has the itch to have a baby right away. And their son, Logan, is born six months into Maddie's first year on the job, known as probation. It's the hardest year. You have to prove yourself over and over again. There are no days off. A lot of guys get let go. You know, I wanted to prove to them that I was, you know, worth sending to medic school because it's expensive and it's a process to get chosen to do that. But at six months, I remember my wife handing me Logan and saying, you know, breast milk's in the fridge, figure it out. I'm going to nursing school. And I, you know, I wanted to support her because she had supported me through all the training and and so, uh, you know, I'd work three days in a row on the busy side of town, not get a lot of sleep. And then here's this little six-month-old boy. And, and I mean, we spent a lot of time together. It was, it was awesome. But at the same time, I, I wasn't ever present. Back then, I just, we just work harder, yeah. make it happen, you know. And I talked about my stepdad a little bit. One of the things he told me was uh, growing up was, Matt, you're going to have to work hard for everything. No one's going to hand you anything, son. And I was like... Okay, I, like I really took that to heart, and a lot of guys on the department have that mentality, right? You work for it, you work hard for it, and and you make it happen. And that's I was doing that at home, and and I was doing that at work. But as a human being, there's only so much, so much you can do before things start to Crumble. to break down. Yeah, if you're not taking care of yourself, I mean, I feel like I took care of myself physically. You know, we're pretty good at that, but when we talk about behavioral health or managing stress or putting sleep and a daily practice of some sort or some kind of introspection or, you know, that's just, we didn't talk about any of that stuff. Zero. It's like, mm -mm. (laughs) mm-mm. What is the first call you remember that really stuck with you where things, you know, got real quick? Mm -hmm. I was still on probation and it was just one of those nights, you know, it was a string of calls. We, we did a hospital transfer on a teenage girl 
who was on one of the roller coasters in close to the city in a amusement park and she had an aneurysm and that was just it's one of those weird calls when you hear the story and and then your mind starts like going man like she was at this place with her family to have fun and she had an aneurysm now she's laying in a hospital bed she probably won't make it yeah. you know so we're transferred to the trauma center so it was like early in the day and then that night a guy tried to rob another guy and as he ran for the door the guy shot him in the back of the head and so the guy's pinned up where we're trying to get in and out of this door so and i remember it vividly like walking up to this little office and then the cops saying hey like don't touch anything you know they they want to keep everything you know the crime scene and it's like okay and just this huge just puddle of blood coming down and this gun sitting there you know and and we had to keep pushing the body to get in and out to help the other guy. We had to keep pushing the body. And so we had that. And then, and this is all like being woken out of a dead sleep. So we get that call, go back to bed, had a few more. I think we had a few more deaths. We had a lot of convalescent homes and in, in our first in area. So, you know, a lot of old people that are put in those convalescent homes. It's just sad. It's just, you know, cause I was, my grandparents were super, I was super close with them. So to see elderly people that are just kind of tossed aside in these places that don't really take the best care of them, you know, to be honest. Um, so we had a, a few of those and then we went back to bed. We had been up all night and then I got, I got a call for childbirth, but when we got there, it was a 15 year old little girl. She had um, one stillborn, on her chest and another one hanging halfway out of her 15. And I just, I, I mean, walked in there, I remember thinking to myself like uncle, cause you think childbirth, like when it comes in childbirth, it's almost like an exciting thing. Cause I've delivered yeah. babies before. It's like, Oh cool. Like, but when those things go sideways, they stick, yeah. you know? So I remember that morning going home, just feeling numb, you know, the novelty of the job really, wore off on that night. I want to talk about the culture before mm -hmm. and after those calls. Was there any walking away from those calls? Is there discussion? Is there support? Or even on the front end, you know, as you were going through the training, that aspect of the job consistently seeing suffering trauma and at times sort of for lack of a better term, the, the worst of humanity, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Was there discussion? Was there support? Well, no. I mean, on the front end of it, you know, it just, it's a hard job. And if you're not cut out for it, then go find something else to do. <laughs> you know, that's the discussion. When I got hired, there were Vietnam vets that were about to retire. It's a different culture. We just didn't, but looking back now and seeing what I know now, what I've learned and seeing the traits in certain people on the job, I'm like, these guys all had PTSD. All of them. It just shows up different in different people. What traits? Anger, isolation. Those are the big ones. Yeah. Sometimes they're just quirky. You know, I had a, I had a captain that if your sheets made, we all slip in a, in a room together. You know, the, the stations were a lot different when I got hired. They were, were just like a room like this with beds in the corners. And that bed was yours, you know, and we had one captain who, if your sheets made noise, he'd go ballistic. He just wanted to get his sleep and we have really terrible sleep. 
So it makes sense to me now, you know, but back then it was like, what a jerk, you know, I couldn't even sleep because I was afraid that my sheets were going to make too much noise, you know? So it wasn't discussed on the front end. I know there was one call in particular I've heard you talk about that it was so clear to the department that it was traumatizing that they decided to do a debrief mm-hmm. after, which was unique. Yeah, that that was, um, I was on a car fire on the freeway and the story attached to this call just made it 10 times worse, but it was um, two young adults that were driving to a amusement park in the area and they were visiting from out of state. You're in Anaheim, so you're yeah. close to Disneyland. Yeah. yeah. And so they were on the freeway. Their cousins were following them who were a teenager new driver and a nine-year-old, her brother, are following their cousins. Traffic stops. They don't see them 85 miles per hour. They rear end their cousins. It hits them so hard, it sends them over the, uh, the K-rail where a bus full of tourists it gets pinned up next to the bus and these tourists watch these two young adults burn to death essentially. And then the car flips back over and, you know, a car fire is like, we get them all the time. And it's like, you hope that there's no one in there, you know, but sometimes there are. And, and it was just my first experience with what burnt, you know, human beings look like. And so after that call, they called for a critical incident stress debriefing and it was weird. It was weird because I was watching captains who had 25 to 30 years on the job cry and then watching my partner get upset. And then a buddy of mine break down, you know, that was on the truck company and had to cut these folks out. And it's just, you know, I wanted to feel my feelings But at the same time, there's the stigma around, you know, and the shame around not being able to quote unquote handle it, you know, and I don't know if I cried or not during that. I know that that call is stuck with me. And every time I drive by that part of the freeway, I think about those kids. But those debriefings, those were far and few between. Is that right? Yeah, for the most part. I mean, it had to be gnarly for lack of a better term, yeah, it had to be really bad because you're taking rigs out of service. Yeah. You know, you're, you're spreading yourself thin and, yeah. but they would ask us, you know, is there anybody that wants to go home? And everybody would say no, you know? And I remember when I actually said yes and the crap I got for it yeah, for actually, you know, going home to be with my family because I just, tones would go off and I would cringe, like somatically would feel it. <laughs> And you talk about, you know, now I want to talk about how this is sort of bleeding out into your personal life and your mm-hmm. relationships, because there is this real secondary impact, because as you said, mm-hmm. this call happens, and then all of these men now need to go home and show up for their relationships, mm-hmm. whatever that is, yeah, sons or fathers, partners. So- how is it starting to present in your personal life? I really felt like anxious. I was tired and not wanting to participate after coming home after a shift like that and just like wanting to go to bed and sleep. <laughs> that is not, it's not how you participate in being a father and a husband, 
you know? So that's how it showed up at first. I was just anxious, tired. Withdrawn? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just want to isolate and, and not be a part of. And so that starts to, you know, wear down the relationship because now I'm not participating in, in my family (laughs) and that started some resentment. And, and so, I mean, it just got worse, you know, it just got worse. The stress proved to be too much for Maddie and Shannon, and they grew apart. Meanwhile, Maddie was coping by going out with the guys who were mostly single. There was a lot of drinking, partying, and a steady supply of women who love a man in uniform. So I'm carrying all this this shame and all these bad coping skills, and I keep making the same mistakes. And then I'm experiencing all this trauma, and, you know, so I have to go dissociate again with alcohol, women, and then I'm in a constant state of denial. And so I live my life that way for um, a good portion of my career. And it just, as much as my wife and I tried, it just, we just couldn't hold it together. And I take a lot of responsibility for that. For a long time, I didn't because there's a certain amount of narcissism that comes along with being a first responder. You know, I'm not a card-carrying narcissist, but there's we get this hero complex, like start believing our own BS and the guys around us. And I'm not the only one doing that. Right. So it just, it's normal. It becomes normal and it's not, it's not okay. Coming up, Maddie's mental and emotional health hits a dangerous breaking point. And then some unexpected angels arrive whose kindness and compassion help him get through his darkest days. Maddie's incredible healing journey and his message for all of us who may be suffering when we come back. All the Wiser is a one-for-one podcast. For every episode you hear, we donate $2,000 to our guest's favorite charity. For today's episode, Matthew chose the charity Next Rung. The mission of Next Rung is to help combat mental health issues among firefighters and first responders by providing peer support and avenues to professional services. You can find out more about Next Rung on their website at nextrung.org. So I know it was about 10 years into the job and you and your wife had had three kids by now mm-hmm. and you've explained all you have going on in these three worlds of fatherhood and partying with the guys and being a firefighter. When is there a steep decline in your mental and emotional health? I would say it started when when the relationship started to decline. That's when I just wanted to spend all my time at work which was easy to do. I just sign up for overtime or get force hired and, and then I could just be there. You know, I could just be at work and the divorce started and, and then I injured my back, which happens to a lot of us, but because I didn't want to go on light duty or modified work. So, you know, we have a city doc that they'll send us to. So the city doc would just, 
when it got really bad, I had to go to him. And he just gave me cortisone shots and sent me back to work, which was a Band-Aid. And so um, going through a gnarly divorce, I was renting a room from a buddy and trying to pay all the stuff that comes along with a divorce. And actually lived in my car for a little while. And I'm in pain. I have to work to pay my child support. So I'm doing everything I can. Well, started drinking heavily during those times. And I just started withdrawing from the guys at work also. I hated the job. I felt like when I was at the station, I was in prison. I was struggling and I was getting really depressed. And then I was, and then the anxiety was showing up. I was having panic attacks and I'm drinking because it's the only thing I know that calms my nerves or whatever, but that doesn't last very long. And I, I, I remember I was driving to the station one day after some drama with the ex-wife and the kids and I was shaking so bad. I pulled over and I called the fire station. I said, what is the number that we call when, when I feel like I'm having a, like a mental breakdown? And I remember my buddy going, uh, hold on, you know, and then like going to find the number for the EAP that we have, which is the employee assistance program that at the time the secretaries from the, you know, from city hall go to, this is just the catch all for the city. So they can say they have something right. And, uh, he gave me the number and I told him, I, I can't come into work, man. I'm like, I'm not doing well. And at this point in time, I know looking back and talking to some of the guys, they just, they knew I was a mess, but at the same time, they don't want me to lose my job. So they're like covering for me. And I had a really amazing captain at the time, still like he's retired now, but he's been an angel for me. He's a really good guy. His name's Rick Cheatham. And uh, he would call me in his office and I thought I was going to get like written up or disciplinary and he was so kind you know and he just would talk to me about like what's you know he would and I was so afraid to tell even this guy who's like Maddie like what's going on man like my mental health that I was I was going crazy I felt like I was going crazy and because I didn't want to lose my job is all I had left that's you know I felt like I was my identity was being a firefighter and he would have these talks with me and, and it would keep me going for a little while. And so anyways, I, I finally couldn't do it anymore. And I called one of the clinicians that was, you know, through the EAP and she diagnosed me with PTSD and told me I needed some Xanax and a good lawyer. Wow. Yeah. And so, I, I mean, I took her advice. I went and like, I had no money. I was trying to get a lawyer to help me with the divorce stuff. Cause I was getting pummeled. And I called my doctor and said, I, this lady said, I need Xanax. So, and that's the worst thing ever. <laughs> so, so now I'm having to take these low dose Xanax just to get by. And, and that lasted a couple of weeks. And, um, my partner at the time was like, dude, you are not okay. And I remember sitting in front of my, my locker and, um, I'm like, I can't put that uniform on. And my buddy sitting next to me who um, was a, a captain at the time, he said, dude, just put that uniform on and come sit at lineup and just fake it. And I said, man, I've been faking it for a long time. Like I can't do it. So I, I ended up putting my uniform on. He called the chief. They had a little powwow with me. And like, like I said, looking back, like they did the best they could with what they had. We can do better. 
but they're like, okay, you can call the EAP or, you know, we're going to give you some paid time off. Go figure it out, essentially. So Maddie does his best to go figure it out. And with not much time to do so, the city is giving him the runaround and he's not getting any help from them. On top of his mental health struggles, he was suffering from a terrible physical injury to his back. From the years of wear and tear on the job, picking up heavy people, wearing heavy equipment, he is unable to get out of bed. And after going a whole month with no pay, his mind is running wild with fear. Will he lose his job? Will he lose his kids? Nothing was found on the x-ray taken at the hospital. Was he going crazy? He used to be a hero for the city. Now, he felt like just a liability. And I felt forgotten, you know. And like I said, I take ownership of that too because I had isolated a lot before that. And so they take me to UCI Medical Center. Again, I knew the doctor. And um, thank goodness because she said, I don't see anything wrong. And I'm like, something's wrong, doc. Like, I, like I'm in a ton of pain. I'm like urinating on myself and having to crawl to the bathroom. She said, okay, I'll keep you overnight and do the MRI. And she did. And then they sent me to a specialist two days later and he's like showed me, he's like, I sent one of my discs so far down into my spinal column, that drop foot, nerve damage. And he's like, I'm like, what do, what do I do? He's like, surgery is the only answer. And, and we don't know like if, how bad it is until we take this thing out. And there was some relief, you know, I'm like, okay, I'm not crazy. There's, there was something wrong with me, you know, some validation. Yeah. yeah. Right. That's a great word. Um, and then I found myself at home waiting a month for a workers comp to uh, approve this back surgery. Right about that time, Eric Weave, a fire captain from Orange County Fire Authority, jumped onto the five freeway. And uh, I remember thinking about doing the same thing. You know, I was laid up, renting a room from a buddy, barely even being able to take care of myself in a ton of pain and thinking, you know, I'm, I'm done. So the ideation got overwhelming and I, I understand it's the voices get loud when there's no hope and they start lying to you, especially when you're brain injured, you know, and that's all part of this. And, and so I took a handful of pills one night. Um, I had pickled myself so bad already that I woke up, you know, I was on these Percocets and drinking alcohol. And after that, it kind of scared me a little bit. And like I said, I work harder, right? I'm hearing that just get up, work harder, heal from this surgery and get back in the game. You know, I still had that, that drive. So I was like, and angels along the way. Yeah. You know, I had a buddy from the college that I barely knew. Um, I lost my car and everything too. So I was taking a bus to see a therapist who was seeing me for free through one of my APD friends. Like I had given up on asking the city for any yeah. kind of help. So I was taking a bus to go see a therapist. I mean, I was doing everything I could. And this guy from the college, he's a kinesiology guy. He had a gym. He's like, my girlfriend would put out on like social media, like, hey, Matt needs a ride to his doctor's appointments, you know, because we didn't have a car. And you know who would show up to take me to doctor's appointments? 
dispatchers. Yeah. Like he never once got one ride from, well, I take that back. One guy gave me a ride to a doctor's appointment, but it was like dispatchers. And that's why the, I, those folks hold a special place in my heart. So I, uh, this guy shows up at my house. He saw the post. He's like, I want to get you better and back to work. And I'm like, I don't have a car. He throws me the keys to his extra truck. He's like, here, Dave Sabo, never forget. Great guy. Looking back, an example of doing something special for someone without expecting anything. Yeah, which I understand, you know, I do now uh, because of examples like that. Yeah. And he, I would go to his gym, he'd work me out. Like um, I put down the bottle and... I didn't want to take the medications anymore because I wanted to know what my body was telling me and when it hurt. And, and we worked out hard for like a month and a half. Now, meanwhile, the city's denying me physical therapy Yeah. after surgery. So I, I think I'm ready. I, I go to the doctor, I touch my toes and I'm, I'm like, I'm ready to go back to work. Uh, I work three shifts and I have draw foot again and my, I'm icing my back and I'm just, I'm in a ton of pain. So I have to go off work again and um, all in, you know, two weeks, everything unravels. Over the next two weeks, Maddie lost custody of his kids, got pulled over for drunk driving, got a DUI, got back behind the wheel, assaulted his girlfriend in a parking lot and beat up the car in a rage. He was ready for it to be over, for all of it to be over. So he hid behind the parking lot dumpster. His plan was to say he had a gun, rush the cops, and hope they would kill him. But his girlfriend had a different plan. She got to the cops first and explained to them what was really going on with Matt behind the dumpster. And uh, I got two sheriff's deputies that shut their body cameras off and spent like half hour, 45 minutes with me talking to me. And, um, yeah. Um, yeah, a lot of me too's, you know, I get it, man. Like I understand validation. Um, I, w- I want them to take me to jail. You know, I just, I hated myself. They ended up just kind of talking me, talking me down. And, and I, I went home, I walked home and the next day I called Rick, my girlfriend called Rick Cheatham and said, Hey man, Maddie's like not doing well. I'm really worried about him. And I was just waiting for the right time. Like I, I was done, especially after that. And, um, they were in communication with a, like, um, an EAP that was culturally competent. And so he was able to get me to a, to a clinician, uh, her name's Shauna Hill. She's a dear friend of mine now and a colleague. She saw me two times. It was years ago. She said, you know, there's a trauma retreat for combat veterans, but they take first responders. It's called Save a Warrior. It's in Malibu and it's free. And I think you'd be a good fit. And um, I'm like, okay. Uh, I just kind of, I really didn't feel worthy to be honest. I'm like, these are combat veterans. Like I was a fireman. And then I got a call from Brian Haggerty who was, did rostering for the program. And um, he was an army veteran, LAPD at the time. And the conversation we had, I'll never forget. There's so many bits and pieces along the way, like little angels that 
gave me validation. You know, I just threw up all this stuff on him, right? It's everybody else's fault. It's the job. It's my ex-wife. It's, you know, it's them, 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 them. Can't look at my part in any of it. What did he say that that was so important at that moment? He said, everything that you're going through and experiencing is 100% completely normal. He said, you're having a normal response to trauma. And I, like, I never got that validation. It was always, I'm broken. I'm crazy. I can't do the job. I just, all this negative self-talk and this inner critic that was just so loud. And then to have the courage a couple of times to ask for help and then get, you know, it all just end up being what I felt was like punitive, you know, or disciplinary. I never had somebody so kind. And then to be a peer, like I look up to this guy and, and he also, he said, uh, I got a couple of books I want you to read. He said, we don't have a spot for a month. I don't want you to make a permanent decision for a temporary problem. And he's like, we'll get you on the other side of this. And he was like, so, so confident, but so kind. Like he's one of the kindest men I've ever met in my life. You know, going back to that, what we were talking about earlier, I, I lost my tribe. I lost my men, you know, and I was abused by men. And all, all I wanted, ever wanted to do was belong and, and be a part of something, you know. And, and when I was removed from that, these guys came back for me, you know, combat veterans and first responders from all over the country, you know, had this program set up to come back for guys like, like me. And so he's like, get out of your bed every morning, make your bed and don't get back in it until it's time to go to bed, which was very difficult for me to do, like depressed, alcoholic firefighter who's injured. I spent all day long in bed. And uh, he's like, read these couple books, and then I'm going to drive three hours one way to teach you how to meditate. Yeah, and uh, I was like, I can't sit still for 30 seconds. Like, meditation? Like, that's not going to work. Like, didn't you hear all the problems I have? I need some Xanax and a good lawyer. <laughs> I'm just kidding. How is meditation going to help me, you know? And he drove down, like, only talked to me one time on the phone, drove all the way three hours one way to teach me to meditate. And we did it. He taught me, he did it with me. And he said, just hold on, we'll get you there. And a month later, right on mother's day. And that's special because Shauna, who I told you about showed up. I was the first client she sent to save a warrior. She showed up on mother's day to make sure that I was in good hands. So yeah, man, all these angels that it's unbelievable. Right. So she shows up on Mother's, Mother's Day, Day, and that is when you arrive mm-hmm. at Save a Warrior. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that experience. It changed everything for me. So I show up at Pepperdine, beautiful. Gorgeous campus. Yeah, yeah up by the flagpole up there. And um, and they sit us down. There's 13 of us, and some of us are talking. We're just, you know, PTSD out. <laughs> pretty much. And there's a Marine with a thousand yard stare, like in the corner with his glasses. And I'm like, that guy's going to stink and kill me, you know? And then you see these guys show up that have been through the program. They call them shepherds. They help facilitate. And then there's guys that just show up for day zero, they call it. And they're hugging and they're happy and like telling them each other that they, I love you. Like it was just, like just seeing that, I'm like, what's going on here? And then they do, they call it uh, day zero, where we sit in this room, all of us, and they explain pretty much the whole five and a half days. 
So they give us the information, but what struck me was that Adam Carr, who led Day Zero, knew every one of our names. So he's like, where's Matt Fiorenza? You know, they knew each one of our names. And I volunteered for that program for three and a half years. And Jay Clark, who started, was one of my mentors. And, and I understand, like, he's like, we remember your names because we care. And uh, it's important. Names matter. Words matter. You know, it just... So doing the meditation twice a day in the morning, and they call it warrior meditation. It's a technique designed for hypervigilant people. And we did it in the morning. We did equine and high ropes and walked a labyrinth. But the groups essentially were um, pre-trauma, they call it. So we just get to know each other. Tell us it's not, we can't tell war stories. We can't talk about what happened in theater or in Afghanistan. Can't talk about what happened on the mean streets in Anaheim. We're going to talk about what happened to you before your 18th birthday. Because the stuff you said you were taking to your grave is what's killing you. And I'm like, get me out of here. Like, I don't want nothing to do with this. And it's not that, you know. And then one of the shepherds will share. Um, they give us like six minutes. One of the shepherds will share his childhood trauma. And then we go in around the room with a bunch of guys we don't know and share this stuff. And um, They say six minutes. Six minutes. You got six minutes. Just like, tell us. And what happens in that circle? Magic. <laughs> Vulnerability, connection. Are there common threads immediately? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, my story is not uncommon, especially in this community. A lot of hero roles in the family dynamic. A lot of people that want to leave home to join the military because of the abuse. To hear other men talk about sexual abuse like, I thought I was different. I thought I was the only one, you know? I didn't think, I didn't know there were men out there that, that had the same thing. You know, I, I knew it happened or whatever, but I, like, most of us had some kind of sexual abuse, which is completely shameful, you know? Um, I don't carry that shame anymore. It's just what happened to me. It's not who I am. And I replaced that with empathy and men who, who are good men. And that's what these guys were for me. And after that experience, I started to feel better. <laughs> I started to feel better and there was no, there's no shame, you know, and that's what Jake would say. Like it's the shame is the fear of being disconnected. Yeah. But if you know what's going on inside here, you'll kick me out of the tribe and I, you know, I yeah. won't get invited to the parties and the, and you'll make fun of me or whatever, yeah. you know? And, um, and that's not, it's the opposite. That's all just a lie. Yeah. You know? Amen. Yep. So what is your path from there to healing and recovery? And how does your life start to change? Well, I I mean, I got relief, but it's it's relief before the pain of the cure, which is the work. And it's different for all of us. You know, I got some stuff off my Because you're chest. dealing with PTSD, traumatic brain injury, and addiction. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So first things first for me was just the daily practice and getting out of the athlete warrior archetype. So what's the daily practice? Prayer, meditation, making your bed, gratitude lists, smart goals, accountability, 
helping another person, 12 step. That's my daily practice. And with the daily practice, it just keeps me out of denial because I'm just doing introspection. I'm getting close to God. I'm, I'm looking at my part in things. I'm thinking about other people and not about me. Yeah. And that's, you know, that was a big deal in meditation. I, I loved it. It made such an impact on me. That's. What did it do for you? What does it do for you? Um, now or back then? Back then. <laughs> it got me centered. It helped me to get my nervous system in alignment because there's a breathing part of that. And it, it helped me to self-soothe without drugs and alcohol. Mm-hmm. And then I just, I went wild with it. I did two 10-day Vipassana meditation courses and that was my practice for a long time was Vipassana and I would meditate for an hour twice a day and loved it. Go take a vow of silence for 10 days and and then I like the benefits of it, like being spiritually connected to other people and feeling it and feeling energy and having wisdom. We're drowning in information, starving for wisdom. Wisdom comes when you sit quietly and listen to the God within. You can call it whatever you want to, the universe or God or, and uh, yeah, I can talk forever about meditation, but I, I teach meditation now to first responders, which is one of my favorite things to do. I love it. It was such a gift that was given to me by Brian that day and has really made all the difference. And I have relationships with men today that have depth and weight and are really special. Like they don't shame me. They don't judge me. They don't co-sign my BS. They take away that baseball bat that I like to beat myself up with. Like they show up for me. I show up for them. Jake says that Save a Warrior is, is an initiation. We've lost that in our culture. That men do the right thing because it's the right thing to do, period. Yeah. And all we have is our word. The truth has a certain ring to it, mm-hmm. you know? So I found my tribe again. And it was these, is this group of men. Another realization that came out of Maddie's new commitment to the truth was that he needed to stop drinking. So he went to his first 12-step meeting, got a sponsor, and started working the steps. And sobriety gave him a whole different outlook on things. It was like a new, it was a new life, but it started just by making my bed and meditating every day. And then it was like 12-step and then, and then I did. Building upon each other. Yeah. And then, yeah, Sean was like, can you come teach this guy how to meditate? And she would send people to me. And then I was, and then they're having me speak at these peer support. And I'm meeting all these fire chiefs and police chiefs and, and I'm having these conversations with them. And then I make it back to work. And then I'm a different guy at work now. They told me there are people at home that are not interested in you getting well, Matt. And this is a tough culture. They said, just keep doing your daily practice no matter what and stay in communication and stay in relationship. And, and that's what I did. And, and I lost a lot of friends on the department because I wasn't that guy anymore. I wasn't the hard charging party or, you know, telling stories about other guys around the table. Like I was quiet and I was meditating. They're like, what are you doing, dude? Like, what is that? They make memes about me. I got in my little presentation that I do, I have a funny meme that they made of me. <laughs> and, um, and then I was, guys that were struggling started to slowly come to me on the department and now I'm now I'm shepherding at Save a Warrior and and now 
I'm going to bat for guys on our department to make sure that they're not getting in trouble when they're struggling with their mental health. Guys are coming to me. Like I'm, mind you, I'm still not on the peer support team. They won't let me on the peer support team because, because of my past behavior, which I totally like understood, but I'm at, I'm out like helping all these other departments and, and now there's Navy SEALs and there's army Rangers and there's different people going to save a warrior. And now these guys are listening to these podcasts with Jocko and, you know, Goggins and they're listening to these podcasts and Rogan. And now they're talking like this stuff is starting to come up. It's starting to become like guys are talking about how they got well, you know, and it's like meditation. And now, now guys are pulling me aside. Like what, will that thing help me sleep? You know what I mean? Like, can I do? And now just organically, like I've become like a subject matter expert on the thing, but I'm doing my own work. And so I helped build a treatment center for first responders exclusively in um, Newport beach. And so I'm working full time. I'm shepherding a table warrior. Uh, I'm trying to work in my own program and have my family at the same time. And things are going really well. I'm really busy and promoting this doing business development all over the country meeting some really amazing people that are in the space and COVID happens. So now we don't know what this disease is. People are dying. You know, we're running on people that have high temperatures. And my symptoms came back and I, I couldn't meditate enough. I couldn't, I relapsed. You were also filming a documentary about yes. your past and sort yeah. of being on the other end of it and healing and right. healing other people in the space. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So... You were really out there publicly. Very much so. Talking about the other side. Yeah. And I was, I mean, and I was there, you know, I was there. You were. I was yeah. there. I. It's a nonlinear process. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely not. It's, it's a series of course corrections. Yeah. And now here I am back to ground zero, but it's worse. Now I know, now I have a head full of all this stuff. I know what I should be doing and I can't do it. And so, um. I ended up going to treatment myself Yeah, and I went in there thinking, okay, I relapsed, but I'm not using anymore. Like, so I was trying to help all the, the other guys. Yeah. You're like facilitating yeah, while you're in rehab. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And just counting down the days, not knowing that there were consequences to that. Some, I feel like way more harsh than yeah should have been in some areas. Um, I remember calling Conrad Weaver, who's the uh, producer and the filmmaker. Yeah. And um, we had a Zoom and I said, I, I relapsed and I want to let you know that I'm not where I was. <laughs> and he, this man is so kind. He's an amazing human being, another angel. And he said, oh my gosh, Maddie. He said, I thought you were going to say that you don't want to be part of it anymore. He's like, dude, it's part of your story, man. Like, I'm here, you know. And he had like stayed with us. Like he, like he became part of our family. So after Maddie's relapse, he continued to participate in Conrad's documentary on trauma and first responders. But his symptoms were back in full force: panic attacks at work again, and the shame that came along with it. He decided that the job wasn't worth his mental health, his sobriety, his life. He was done with the fire service. He began intensive outpatient treatment and started the process for medical retirement. It was a difficult process. 
He was overwhelmed. The voices got loud. He tried, but he couldn't calm them down. Then, another suicide attempt. He checked himself into a psychiatric facility hospital. And then, through another alignment of angels, Maddie was given a scholarship to do a brain spect scan at a place called the Amen Clinic. The jury's still out in the medical world about whether or not these spec scans are whatever. I don't care. I would do anything at this point to feel better. So they do one for the outside of your brain and one for the inside of your brain. And then you go, they take all the data and you go talk to one of their doctors. And so he showed me my brain scans, found I had TBI, went right in my prefrontal cortex, which explains a lot of my behaviors. They give me a treatment plan moving forward. And then they show me the inside of my brain and that my basal ganglia, which is the bundle of nerves that kicks off the fight, or fight process in your brain. And they said, this thing is, it's on fire, essentially. It's got a lot of blood flow to it, which means it's, it grows more nerves. And this is why you're anxious all the time. So to see biologically and physiology at work in my own brain through these spec scans, they're like, you might want to look into this other treatment called the Stella Ganglion Block. So I get hooked up with another nonprofit, right? Here I'm 22 years with the city that I protected, you know, and served getting denied care through work comp. And I have nonprofits that are paying for the treatments at work, you know, insurance won't even pay for some of these things. So this nonprofit, like, we'll, we'll let your wife do it too, because of secondary trauma and because of her childhood trauma, we'll pay for both of you guys to fly out to Chicago. Dr. Romig is kind of the guy who's heading the whole thing up and we'll, we'll do the treatment for you for free. And we want to make it like a little vacation for you. It's super sweet. So my wife and I fly out to Chicago. So it's 6 a.m. the next day, they bring us in. Um, they put me under because I didn't have a lot of weirdness around needles now that especially it's an epidural. That's all it is with is the it? same kind of me medication. It's not. And the back of the neck, right? Yeah. They go through the front of your neck and it hits oh, wow. that part of your brain. So I tell them to put me out. I wake up and I'm wailing, like bawling my eyes out, like. And I don't know how else to explain it than like grief and gratitude. Like, and I look at the nurse and I'm like, is this normal? And she's like, it's totally normal, sweetie. Like it, it happens to a lot of people. And so after the symptoms wear off that they looked for, like droopiness in the face, redness of the eye, they look for certain symptoms that happen. I don't think I ever felt like that in my whole entire life. Cause my nervous system was on fire before I even stepped on the fire engine. Colors were brighter. Things were more there were more depth. I went and took the most glorious nap I'd ever taken in my life. Like how many of my faculties were wasted on hypervigilance? The world looked totally different. Hmm. Yeah. So my wife and I went out into the city of Chicago for the next four days and had the best time ever. So I get back to California and then we find out my wife is pregnant. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, the doctors think it settled our nervous systems down enough to conceive. Uh, eight months old now. Her name's Jordan. So this, I love telling people this. So she was conceived in Chicago a day after we had the shot. She's conceived in Chicago. Her birthday was almost on the 17th of February, which is Michael Jordan's birthday. Uh -huh. I'm a huge Michael Jordan fan. <laughs> and she was born in the year 2023. Wow. Yeah. 
And now that's what, those are the God shots. You know, those are the things I pay attention to. Yeah, and it's, conceived in Chicago. Right? Yeah. I believe she's a little gift. Hey there, listeners. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Maddie so far. But I have a favor to ask. This is our last season of All the Wiser. And we have a big dream for our final episode of this five-year project. We want to hear from you about how this show has impacted your life. We want to hear your stories. We've set up a number and voicemail, and all you have to do is call in, tell us your favorite episode, your favorite guest or collective guest and episodes, and how they've impacted you, how you've been changed in big ways or small. It's really simple. You leave your name, where you're calling from, and then you just speak from the heart. The number to call is 310-243-6364. The number is also in our show notes and our Instagram bio at All The Wiser Podcast. Thank you for being a part of the All The Wiser family and to everyone who calls in to share their stories. Where are you in your life today? Um, in incredible places. I retired from the fire department. I finally got my medical retirement. My recovery is strong. My family is strong. My faith is strong. My community is strong with all the right people. And I'm over the last couple of days, I've been given three job offers. And I'm working with a family-run treatment center in Cathedral City called Recovery First. I love doing the preventative stuff. So I I was just out here last month or two months ago at uh, Santa Monica Fire Department teaching them how to meditate. So I've taught your your firefighters how to meditate. Thank you. Yeah. And I'm just, I've got everything back tenfold. So the whole time we've been having this conversation, your service dog, mm-hmm. Axel Rose, has been here. What role has Axel played, does Axel play, even here, having this conversation and having to relive much of this? Mm-hmm. Gosh, you know, when I got him, I didn't think I needed him. And my wife and I went to marriage counseling three times to discuss getting this dog. And then um, as things got progressively worse and I had been training him up on what he's trained to do, you know, six, which is look behind me, block, create space between me and people behind me. If I show any signs of anxiousness, they're trained to smell cortisol levels. So he knows when I'm getting upset and he'll come over here and put his head on my shoulder or he'll lick my face or, and so having to be responsible for him and make sure that his needs are met keeps me accountable when on those days where I feel like staying in bed, you know, he doesn't let me do that. It was real vital during that time. He, like I'm never alone. I'm never alone. He's always with me and he, we are so connected. He keeps me calm in crowds there and there's science behind that too. You know, when you pet a dog, you get release oxytocin and that's your happy chemical. So when I, go teach or I go train or I go do a debrief or I just let him off the leash and let him do his thing. And yeah. He's working the room. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And That's he's very cool. He, people love him. Yeah. You know? So we are a show about, you know, finding hope and possibility on the other 
side of pain. And in our country, I think in this moment and time, we so need first responders, EMTs, firefighters, police officers who are well, physically well, emotionally well, mentally well for themselves, for their families, Mm -hmm. and, and for the community. So what are some of the things that are bringing you hope mm-hmm. that you believe are possible for future guys mm-hmm. right now that are more like you, young and and just starting off? Yeah, uh, I think we've we have come a long way. The conversations being had, there's they're teaching this stuff, this behavioral health stuff in the academies. They're dedicating more time to it. We're creating peer support teams. You know, we're teaching staff and we're teaching the decision makers more about this stuff. We're educating them. We're doing more training on this. So because this stuff shows up in behavioral issues. So when the organ used for cognition is injured and you do something out of character and you get in trouble, instead of going right to the disciplinary, it's about, okay, what's going on with this person who's been stellar employee and is now not showing up to work on time or showing up hungover or did something out of character. And I think as a culture, we've sadly, right? We had four suicides in the LA County Sheriff's Department in 48 hours. Four. That's unacceptable. And this is a week ago. A week ago. As I was researching to have this conversation, it popped up on Instagram. Four LA Sheriff's Department in 48 hours. 48 hours. Took their life. All unrelated. And there's a solution to this stuff, you know? We are asking way too much of these human beings right now, way too much, especially on the law enforcement side. When we take care of and educate our first responders about behavioral health and their own mental health, it trickles down into the community. You're more empathetic. You have more compassion for people. You know, you make better decisions when you've slept, right? Or when you've processed a critical incident, you know, I heard a story that an officer showed a little, like too much use of force on handcuffing a bunch of kids that were in a pool, in a public pool after hours or something. And the part of the story that wasn't told is that a couple hours earlier, that officer went on a, on an infant drowning hmm. and was just put right back in the patrol car to go to work. You know, and that's the part that people don't see. We're human. We're human beings. And there's only so much we can take and we can do without the support of, you know, the community, right, that we serve and the support of our our lawmakers and our decision makers. And But like I said, we, we are getting better. It's just we have to do better because one suicide is unacceptable because there's a solution. There's a solution to this stuff. And, of course, you want... You, when you are, are at your worst and you dial 911, you want a healthy, well-trained person to show up and handle your emergency with empathy and compassion. And, and we all start off that way, right? So there's a lot that we have to do, but there's, you know, we're educating more. We're getting good training on this stuff, you know, and we have people out there like me, I'm that are advocates. Like I'm a huge advocate for first responders that are, especially the ones that are going to get in trouble and get fired for, you know, making a bad decision or dissociating some way of bad coping skill or whatever. It's, that's a big deal for me. What do you hope 
people take away hearing your story? I think you said it. I think it's hope and that you're not alone, that my story is not unique. And if, if there's a similarity in your own story, that there are people out there like me who are available to, to have a conversation with you, to point you in the right direction of really good resources and a good way to get better and to get healthy because you deserve it and your family deserves it. And we need you on this planet. Everybody has a purpose. And there's, there is life on the other side of this stuff. That's the biggest thing. It's like we can take our struggles and use them and our suffering and use them to help somebody else. You know, that's why we're on this planet. Whether you have your uniform on and getting paid to do it, um, I think there's more joy in, in doing it without a uniform on, expecting nothing in return. You get those karma butterflies. <laughs> but yeah, there's there's hope. And there's there are people out there that that can help you if you feel like suicide's an option. Thank you, Maddie, for being here today and for sharing yourself with me and everyone listening. And and thank you for your service, the fire department, and um, and most importantly, the, the work and service you're doing in the world right now. We need yeah. it. Yeah, thank you. If you would like to check out the documentary film featuring Maddie's story, there are two ways to watch it. You can go to the website, ptsd911movie.com, or you can look for PTSD 911 on Amazon Prime Video. If you're having thoughts of suicide, there is help available. You are not alone. You can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline toll-free at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. And a special thank you to all our first responders who work tirelessly day and night to keep us safe. We are grateful for your sacrifice and honor your humanity. Thank you, as always, for listening to the show. I'm Erica Gerard, the producer of All the Wiser, coming to you from Chattanooga, Tennessee. Music and editing is done by composer John Lasala, and our associate producer is Tara Daigle. And until next week, take extra special care of yourself and one another. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. 
Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.